great singing, Joy Has Dawned. May that indeed uh, be true for us today and all our days, that joy has dawned. If you would, uh, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 98. Let's uh, go to the Lord and ask for his help. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that we indeed have a chart and a compass to get us from where we are now to where we one day will be. Father, you have called us to walk by faith and not by sight. So today, as we spend time in your word, would you be pleased to strengthen our faith? Give us eyes to see the glorious mystery of Jesus Christ, fully divine, fully human, our mighty champion, for we pray in his name. Amen. We're in a season of Advent, right? Waiting. And yet, our world just can't wait, can it? I mean, decorations are already up. I mean, of course... It used to have a certain start time. Uh, Advertising is in full swing now. It used to be, what, after Thanksgiving? Um, And indeed, there used to be, and maybe 10 years ago I could say this, there used to be a rule, one unbreaking universal rule. No Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. Right? That rule went out the, I mean, that's been broken and just laid asunder, hasn't it? I mean, I think there's a radio station around here. I want to say September, maybe? October, it starts playing Christmas music. It can't wait. It's a bit ironic, isn't it? Since Advent is about the coming and the waiting. Christmas music is everywhere. It's in the world. You step on an elevator in an office building, a hotel, you've got Christmas music. It's indoors, it's outdoors, and quite appropriately, it's now in the church. And arguably, uh, one of the most popular and well-known Christmas carols in the Western world is what? Joy to the world. Joy. At the end of 2023, My memory sometimes, uh, I get lost and I can't remember things, so I like to think of things like with one letter. And tell me if this does not describe some aspects of our world right now. Division, distrust, despair, demise, destruction, depression. The world out there, right? Uh, wars and conflicts, um, not only institutions failing, but certain people and organizations trying their best to destroy institutions. There's political discord. Depending on who you talk to, the economy is really good or the economy is really bad. That's the world out there. But what about your world? In here, beneath and behind the glowing exterior, 
that all of us feel tremendous pressure, I believe, to put on. Not just toward unbelievers, but at times before one another, that we have it all together, that everything is glowing and wonderful. And yet, it is just the exterior that's glowing. Is there joy right now on the inside for you? Your interior life, the life that really only you know, is there joy? And yet, do we not know that as Christians, we have reasons for joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. That's number two in the list. Uh, love rightly kind of dominates, right? But coming in right after love is joy. And no him captures that better than joy to the world. Now, I don't know if it's just recently, but a lot of people are taught, they don't know what they're talking about, right? They're just talking. They don't know what they're talking about, though. And sadly, a lot of people don't know what they're singing about. But if one of the ways God gets into our heart is not just through the printed word, but the sung word, Maybe, just maybe, learning what we're singing about and the reason the words are there could actually be really, really helpful to us as we're trying to find the joy. And so we're going to take the next four weeks to unpack the biblical truth captured by the hymn, Joy to the World, Remember earlier in Luke, Luke 10, excuse me, Luke 2, verse 10, the angel is announcing the birth of Jesus. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good news. Good news. Um. If you remember where we've been in Luke, in Luke chapter 4, and a couple of times, it speaks of uh, that Jesus says, I've been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. Just right at the beginning of chapter 8, we read um, that Jesus was proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The angel announces what? Good news of great joy. Jesus is proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. No wonder Paul could say that the, the kingdom of God is what? Joy. So today we're going to see that there is great joy in his coming. Next week in his rule. The following week in his blessing and on Christmas Eve in his favor. Now, we've got to talk a little bit about Isaac Watts. I mentioned earlier he is known as the father of English hymnody. He's reportedly to have written somewhere between 600 and 750 hymns. That's a lot of hymns. And in the back of our Trinity hymnal, there is a, a, um, an index of authors of hymns as well as authors of tunes. And you can, 
you can see how many we have in our hymnal of Watts and Wesley and others, the father of English hymnody. He lived from 1674 to 1748. And in 1719, he published this, the Psalms of David imitated in the language of the New Testament and applied to the Christian state and worship. That's the long title. I think it's good that we say Trinity hymnal or hymns modern and ancient, right? I mean, you couldn't fit that title on the front of a hymnal, could you? It's not a paraphrase, but an imitation. And if you look at the bottom of that um, insert where it's got Psalm 98, you'll see that whole title there. Now, interestingly, at that time in the English, uh, there was singing of psalms and metrical psalms. And, and Watts was kind of a precocious child. He learned a lot of le- uh, foreign languages and he was, he was good with rhyme. And he was complaining to his dad. That never happens, right? A child complaining to their father that there really weren't any good hymns to sing anymore, right? Especially from the Psalms. And so dad says, well, if you can um, do anything about it, go ahead. And guess what Isaac Watts did? He started writing hymns. And so in the early 1700s, in the mid 1700s, you know who Isaac Watts is? He is a leader in contemporary Christian music. He is on the forefront of contemporary Christian hymns. He's taking um, the language of the New Testament and the fulfillment in Christ, and he's bringing it back into the Psalms. Uh, You see, Watts knew Luke 24. It's the interpretive key. Remember, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, And he says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And he continues, we read in verse 44 with his disciples. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Watts was seeing that the Psalms had been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And so that's why he started rewriting an imitation. It's what David would have written if David had known and seen the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, you'll notice that the um, tune is Antioch. Uh, George Handel, a well-known composer, composed the tune. And, And this hymn was arranged by Lowell Mason. Now, you might say, Who cares about Lowell Mason? But let me tell you a few things about it. Um, He was a banker. He was a composer. And he ended up in Savannah, Georgia, as the music director, the choir director, and the organist at Independent Presbyterian Church of Savannah, Georgia. He He was known for introducing and promoting congregational singing. And so he would arrange hymns so that they could be some. Now, why do I care about Independent Presbyterian Church? Because Grace and Peace in her early years was supported financially and prayerfully by Independent Presbyterian Church. They helped us get off the ground and be established. And so here is that connection between us here in 2023 and the arranger of joy to the world. Now, this hymn is written from Psalm 98, and it makes a huge claim in the opening line of the hymn, right? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. 
uh, how can how can Isaac Watts make such a claim? I mean, what is the reason for joy? So let's, uh, Tyler read it once. Let's hear it again. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of, the mel- of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So first, to recognize is to rejoice. Joy to the world. The Lord is Verses 4 and 6 make the same statement. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Now, as we get going, we need to ask this question. When is a Christmas carol not a Christmas carol? That is not a trick question. When is a Christmas carol not a Christmas carol? You heard Psalm 98, right? No mention of the incarnation. No mention of anything remotely resembling what took place in Bethlehem. You see, this hymn celebrates God's universal kingship. Isaac Watts saw the coming of Jesus as the promised Davidic king who will bring light to the Gentiles. It's as if Watts saw the Old Testament, get this, as promises made and the New Testament as promises kept. See, Watts is doing what every good interpreter of the Bible needs to do, and that is to look at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. And this recognition, this this reason for rejoicing is because there's a recognition of something. And there are six reasons. Um, Look at the first three verses. Three times there's salvation mentioned. And and it's alluding to the exodus from Egypt, that, that event in the life of God's people that they could look back to and rejoice and celebrate. The deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Look at look at this, verse one. God has done marvelous things. Deeds that display God's supernatural control. Remember the parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of the pursuing Egyptian army. God has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation. It's this image of military victory. Verse two, the Lord has made known his salvation. Uh, What God has done. Uh, What Jesus has done as Luke shows us where we were last week. Uh, Jesus told the healed 
demoniac to, to go and proclaim all the things that God had done for him. And Luke says, and he went out and proclaimed all that Jesus had done. We keep reading that God has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations, uh, how God is faithful to keep his promises. Uh, People that keep their promises are people you want to be with. God keeps his promises. And notice, interestingly, that salvation and righteousness are parallel. God has revealed his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness. It's almost interchangeable. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. Verse three, it's more than just a memory, but it's his, his, his favorable action. You see, when God remembers his people, when he remembers us, it's not just a cognitive of, oh yes, I recall that. No, when he remembers, he takes action. He hears their cry. He hears our cry. He remembers And then in verse three, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Remember, as Israel spent time in the wilderness and as they came into the promised land, people, the nations around had heard what God had done. They had heard what the what God, the the Lord had done for these people. So to recognize is to rejoice that the Lord is come. To to do what? Uh, To save, yes. You've heard it in the first three verses. The Lord has come to save, to rescue, to redeem. But also, as the final verse in Psalm 98 says, that the Lord has come to judge to judge fully the earth, the world, to judge not only fully, but fairly with righteousness, with equity. I mean, can you imagine a judge? Could you, none of us really want to go before the judge, right? Here in civil court, criminal court, right? But you want to go before a judge that is impartial, fair, equitable, not subjective, objective to, as it were, the law and the circumstances. And here's God, perfect judge, perfect justice to recognize is to rejoice. Well, not only is there a huge claim in this opening stanza of the hymn, but there's also a huge call. There's a claim and a call. Let earth receive her king. You see, it's the indicative, the statement that's immediately followed by the imperative, the command. You see, the claim, um, joy to the world, the Lord has come. The claim is followed by a so what? Big deal. So what that the Lord has come? Well, it's followed by a response, right? What is the response to this massive claim? Uh, Using uh, the language of the hymn to make a connection with the New Testament, I think we can see the Apostle John speaking of this idea of receiving. So turn with me, if you would, from Psalm 98 back to John 1. To John 1. We read the first 18 verses, but we're going to look in particular at verses 9 through 13. Look at verse 11. He, that is the word, 
He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus, the Lord is come. He's come and he's not received by his own people. He's rather rejected by his own people. The word came. The word came amongst the people that had been prepared for the word. And he's rejected. He's not received. But here comes one of the most important three letters in the Bible. There's God. There's sin. Well, there's man, God, sin. And you ready for the other big three letter word? But. But. 99 times out of 100, when you see a but God, it's good news. But, we read in verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, Jesus is rejected, but Jesus is also received. He's received by those, as we will see, born of God. Now, Receiving uh, implies not merely some kind of intellectual only agreement with some facts about Jesus. Because what does James say? Even the demons believe and they shudder. Rather, it has to do with both welcoming and submitting to him in a personal relationship. You see, Jesus then and Jesus now is either rejected or he's received. And receiving equals believing. Believing here is is what you treasure, what you trust. Jesus is not accepted. I know that's that's some pretty common um, way to say things. Have you accepted Jesus as your personal Savior? And I get it, and I've said it. But when you think about it, that puts you in the driver's seat. That Jesus has to be good enough for you. He's not accepted as in you went after Jesus. No, he's rather received. Jesus is presented to you and he's received. Paul writes to the Colossian church, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding In thanksgiving, therefore, just as you received. Now, believing and receiving, I'm saying, are synonymous. And and, and people in Jesus' day had a a good question. Um, In John 6, uh, Jesus was teaching and doing miracles. and, And some people come up to him and say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Right? Jesus is is doing the works of God and, and, and they're, okay, if Jesus is doing that, do we need to be doing that as well? And they ask a question, what must we do? And this is what Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. John says here, believed in his name. What's that referring to is that all that's true of Jesus, the totality of of who Jesus is, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. In other words, if you believe in the name of Jesus, you get the A to Z of Jesus. Everything, 
It's, it's no a la carte Jesus. It's, it's everything John is saying. Simply by trusting Jesus rather than in ourselves and our own merits, we become beneficiaries of the grace of God in salvation. My friends, the gospel, the gospel that we believe, the gospel that we proclaim, the gospel that we defend, the gospel is scandalous, but true. And that's really good news because there's no hope. Our shorter catechism asks this question, what is faith in Jesus Christ? And here's the answer. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we, what? Receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. We receive and rest. Um, in the Navy, you know, you looked forward to R&R, right? You're working hard, you're deployed, you need a break. You're gonna get some leave and you're gonna go on R&R, rest and relaxation. Well, this R&R according to our shorter catechism, is receiving Jesus and resting upon him alone for salvation. Let earth receive her king, King Jesus. We believe, and rightly so, that Jesus is king. He is with us. He is for us. He is he has gone out and subdued us to himself and he rules and defends us against all his and our adversaries. Let earth receive our king. Let us receive our king. Well, what is the benefit of believing? Or put differently, what do you really receive? If, if believing is receiving, what do you receive? In a word, you receive a right, an unalienable right. What you get is you become a child of God. You have a right to be adopted and you are adopted. So to believe is to become a child of God. And we see that again at the end of verse 12. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is not universalism. Uh, the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man. In a sense, of course, every human is an offspring of God as Paul addresses the Athenians in Acts 17. But no, it's not just a general fatherhood of God and a general brotherhood of man. It is rather not universalism, but particularism. Because neither physical birth nor ethnic descent nor human effort can make people the children of God it's only God's supernatural work. Therefore, the possibility of who can become children of God is wide. The possibility extends beyond Jews to Gentiles. Last week in Luke 8, what did we see? Jesus and the disciples crossed the Sea of Galilee and they're in Gentile territory. Already there's a hint of the message of the gospel going beyond Israel to the nations. 
to call God Father. It's a massive change brought about by Jesus. Every week when we pray together the Lord's Prayer, we're making, we're acknowledging a massive change has taken place. Our Father who art in heaven. Our Father. J.I. Packer in Knowing God says, a Christian is one who has God as Father. And then he goes on to say, Father is the Christian name for God. To be a child of God is to have God as Father, and it is a great joy. John the Apostle writes in his first letter, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Well, with joy to the world, Isaac Watts transformed this old Jewish psalm of praise for that historic deliverance into a Christian song of rejoicing for the salvation of God that comes in and through Jesus Christ alone. You see, Psalm 98 celebrates God's protection and restoration of his chosen people. And Watts rejoices in the same theme. Uh, Indeed, his title was, and if you would look with me at the insert, the title for Joy to the World was The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom. You see, we don't sing Joy to the World versus stanzas one through three. And that's from Psalm 98, one through three. No, we sing Psalm 98, four through nine, the Messiah's coming and kingdom. And believe it or not, Watts wrote this to, to celebrate the Lord's second coming, not his first coming. Watts is looking forward to the return of Jesus, the second advent, joy to the world. But yet this hymn rightly captures the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. That is the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. So over these next four weeks, uh, we're gonna explore the joy found in his coming, his rule, his blessing, and his favor. Advent, a time of focused preparation, a time to prepare for the coming of Jesus, a time historically of waiting. So here's a question. Um, Do you have great joy at the thought of the coming of Jesus? Or do you have rather great fear? Do you have joy at the thought of the return of Jesus or rather are you afraid? You see, for the believer, there's great joy not only in the first coming of Jesus. Think with me of Hebrews 2 that Jesus came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. But it's also great joy in in his return in judgment because it'll be a time of perfect judgment. The judge will return and everything wrong will be made right. And if you're not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, it will not be a happy day. But if you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, if you're trusting in Jesus, it will be the happiest of days. 
Everything will be made right. Now, I didn't plan this, but, but uh, By Faith Magazine, did y'all notice the front? You can hardly read it. Joy. Joy. And uh, it's a several-page article, and on page 34 it starts, and it says this in the subtitle, The Joy of the Lord May Be the Most Convincing Apologetic for Christian Faith in Our Day. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Joy to you and me, the Lord is come. And you know what's interesting about is come? You can sort of get the past, he has come. And you can get the future, he will come again. Well, not only did by faith um, orient their, their, um, their theme or their cover title to what we were doing, but also table talk. This month, um, for those of you that don't have it, I encourage you to get a copy. But there's an article toward the end of this month called "The Power of Joy," and I just want to read you this short part of a paragraph uh, by John Sartell, who used to be a pastor down in Lexington in our Presbytery. He writes this: "How can joy be such a distinguishing mark for the Christian? The world can know joy." Just as it can know love, how then is the joy wrought by the Holy Spirit different from the world's joy? It is a transcendent joy. How can that be? We are quite ordinary people. This joy has a supernatural aspect. The source of this joy is a heart that has been changed by the Holy Spirit, a heart that has been produced by a rebirth. It is a joy empowered by the Holy Spirit who indwells us and is constantly transforming us. My friends, that joy is a gift. A gift that you receive. It's not just joy to the world, as I've been saying. It's, it's, it's joy to us, but it's, it's really joy to every person. Let every heart Prepare him room. Well, how do you prepare? How do you prepare room for this, this let earth receive her king? How do, you, how do you prepare? Well, I think Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish pastor in the late 1700s, early 1800s, uh, wrote a sermon called this, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. To remove the snares and tangles of sin, not through legalistic obedience, but through the power of a new and greater affection for God. You remember one of the soils? Thorns, right? That heart that was crowded, that heart that was distracted. You see, if the soil has got a lot of thorns in it, and weeds growing up, it's really going to be hard and difficult, right, for the seed to be fruitful. How how Chalmers is saying, how do you get rid of the weeds and thorns? Really not by weeding, not by removing things, but rather the good fruit, the good plant, the good seed, just growing up and taking over, expelling the weeds and the thorns. In other words, put simply, how does this happen? It's repentance. You turn from, but it's also belief. 
you turn to. So since Advent is a time of preparation, uh, my encouragement to all of us is to take a few moments now, I mean like right now, and ask yourself how you're going to prepare him room. Come up with just one thing you're gonna do to prepare him room. And then tell somebody about it. And then ask them next week, or ask them to next week ask you about it. How's your preparation going? My friends, the gospel declares joy to the world for the Lord is come. The Lord has come and the Lord will come again. You see, between the already and the not yet of our salvation is a great and a growing joy, a supernatural joy, a joy produced by the Spirit. My friends, the gospel is indeed good news of a great joy for all people who are trusting not in themselves, but in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that supernatural joy that is produced by the Holy Spirit in us that is not dependent upon circumstances around us. Father, help us indeed during this yearly reminder that we call Advent. Help us to to slow down to take a look around and to have a new and growing affection for you through faith in Jesus dominate our lives. Oh, Father, indeed, it's not just joy to the world, but it's great joy to all who believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.